welcome to season three of What's Killing My Kale. This is a University of Minnesota Extension podcast co-hosted by Extension educators Annie Claude and Natalie Hoytel. In this season, we're starting with a mini-series about climate change and how that's affecting fruit and vegetable growers. In episode one, we interviewed climatologist Kenny Blumenfeld, who gave us an excellent overview of trends and future projections for climate and weather patterns in Minnesota. So if you haven't listened to that, I recommend listening to that one first. And in this episode, Annie interviewed Laura Frerichs, who's a farmer at Loon Organics in Hutchinson. Laura had a lot of insight, ideas, and enthusiasm, and so I hope that you enjoy this episode as much as we did. With that, thanks for listening, and we will just jump right into Laura's interview. So um, I farm with my husband and partner, Adam, and we have been farming for 15 years. Um, We started our business in 2005, and then we moved to this farm in 2008. So currently we own 40 um, acres and we're certified organic, and we're growing um, organic vegetables. so primarily vegetables, a few fruits that are thrown in. Um, and in terms of scale, we have been, we've kind of played around with different scale. We've been as large as farming eight or nine acres in cultivation. Um, this past season, we had around five acres in production. Um, and then we have a quarter acre in high tunnel production. So what that translates to um, for us this past year is that we had about 100 families that we were feeding through our CSA program, our Community Supported Agriculture Program. Most of those families were local. And then um, we attend the Mill City Farmers Market in Minneapolis on Saturdays. And we've been there for um, 14 years. Uh, and that is a really big part of our sales um, and our um, where a lot of our production is going right now. Um, we do a little bit of wholesale. So we, we do a little bit of wholesale to a few restaurants. Um, we also are sending a lot of our produce to um, food shelves, both locally and then in the Twin Cities as well. So when you think of climate change in the Midwest, what are some of the things that come to mind, and especially when it uh, is regarding farming? Right. So what we've experienced, um, you know, since we've been involved for around 15 years, over 15 years, when including the time that we spent working on other farms in the Midwest, um, how <clears throat> it has been illustrated is these really excessive rainfall events Um, And then an extreme variability in climate. And so um, when you talk about like a normal growing season, quote unquote, that just doesn't feel like it's a reality anymore. Um, It feels like every year we are going to have a rainfall event that exceeds four or five inches. And that's just a given where that would have been really unusual um, something that I actually don't think we experienced um, working on farms or even when we started our own farm. Um, that, was, that was just not something that um, was in the weather pattern that was very irregular. And now it is a regular occurrence. Um, and so um, 
I would say the 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 rain and the excessive moisture has been that biggest impact um, in the Midwest, and I see that. You know, like we are friends with and um, keep tabs on farms in other areas of the country and other areas of the world, and it seems like the Midwest is really experiencing um, kind of the the brunt of that kind of excessive moisture and something that has developed that I hear meteorologists talking about as something that um, is an impact of climate change. Um, and that our area of the country is experiencing that more than many other places. So what do those types of changes mean for your farm? Yeah, so what that means is um, we're on pretty heavy clay soil. We're, you know, on the edge of the prairie right here. <clears throat> so when we have big rainfall events um, or when we have a, the wettest season on record, it's really challenging for us to do the, the work that we need to do in the fields. Um, and we, uh, especially this year, the, which is now um, going to be the wettest year on record, we had excessively <laughs> short windows to um, do like the necessary tillage and cultivation and planting and even harvesting um, to get in and do that before our next rainfall event. Uh, and I would say that is the, the biggest change is we have to be so flexible and adaptable and really attuned to um, the weather and the, the dramatic changes that can happen very quickly in the weather forecast. Um, so like we're, we're constantly looking um, at, the, at the forecast and also kind of just reading what's going on outside um, and ready to kind of switch gears on a dime. Um, and many times this season, uh, our regular plan of action for the day would have to be completely upended and kind of go into like emergency mode. Like we're not gonna be in the fields for another week. What are the absolute most necessary, like what is the highest priority list of things that we need to do right now? And I think it's really challenging for farmers because it kind of puts you in this, a very stressful position um, out of the blue. Um, <clears throat> and, um, you know, we're, I'm really glad that we have a lot of experience. So I feel like we have a lot of knowledge to be like, to know exactly the decisions that need to be made when, like when we're in a very, you know, a crunch of time. But oftentimes it would happen on a Sunday afternoon when we don't have staff here. Um, and so like our family would be like, all right, we gotta go plant. Um, this is it, we're not gonna be in the field for another week and we've been out of the field for a week. So if we wanna have crops in two months, we have to go out and transplant. Um, so the, the short windows has been crucial. And what that means is that when, you know, if we need to plant, maybe we're not able to cultivate. So then um, weed management, is very challenging in wet years, um, especially for annual vegetables. Like that's something that we just have to keep on top of. And we use a lot of small cultivating tractors to do um, that weed management so that we can really minimize the labor that we're spending, the hand labor that we're spending on um, keeping weeds in check and keeping weeds in control. So when we're not able to get in and do that cultivation, you know, that just 
sets us back, which means more labor. Um, it also means that we might be suffering from some decreased yields because of weed pressure. Um, so it just adds, you know, like compounds kind of the work. <clears throat> and then we also have to be careful that we're not working soil when it's too wet because then we are compromising our soil structure and um, compacting, really compacting our soil, which then, you know, we have problems with for a long time. Um, so um, the, the weed and then, of course, the other major thing I would say is the disease pressure. Um, so uh, black rot, I want to say um, that was 2015 or 2016. I can't remember what year that was. I have to go back and check. But what was, um, I believe it was the last wettest year on record for our area. Um, and then we had a really huge outbreak of black rot on our brassica crops, which are a big part of our production here. And so we lost, you know, um, thousands of fall broccoli and fall cauliflower plants um, cabbage as well and now that we have that on our farm it's really challenging to get rid of that um, and we've been able to do a good job rotating fields and also selecting varieties we've dropped some varieties um, that are just seem to have no resistance to the the black rot um, <clears throat> black rot and then we also have bacterial soft rot which moves in at the same time that is almost worse than the black rot um so those that is new um where we you know like that has been a learning curve for us um where we hadn't experienced that before and this is kind of like the new reality of adapting to that and so you have several high tunnels on your farm how are you using high tunnels to be more resilient against the effects of climate change? Yeah, high tunnels have been a huge reason um, for our kind of continued stability and profitability over the last 10 years. Um, and they, for us on our farm, at our scale, um, we're able to really focus production of high value crops in our high tunnels where we have way more control over moisture um, and, and, and fertility and other components um, so that we can have really, you know, dependable, um, high quality yields. So they have been, I mean, I feel like high tunnels have saved our farm. I don't know, I don't know how our farm would be able to farm without high tunnels um, and something that we feel like for us is the future of small scale um, fresh market um, vegetable farming. Um, so <clears throat> they have been huge and, and it really is the um, really the, the ability to control the water. Um, so keeping the rain out of the high tunnels, keeping that off of the foliage. Um, so being able to control that water and then also to have that additional protection from this extreme variability that we have in the shoulder season. So, um, you know, if we get a really light frost um, or if we get a really early frost, 
uh, we have that protection and are able to kind of grow some of our spring and fall crops in, in addition to the summer crops in our high tunnels to give us this longer production window. Um, when customers are really, you know, excited about local food and want to have it, but our field stuff is so much further behind, can be, you know, a month or more behind where our high tunnel production is. Um, so they've been a great, um, for us, we are farming, we don't have crop insurance. And so with this extreme climate variability, like high tunnels for us are basically what we feel like is like our form of crop insurance. In this season, um, one of the big themes across Minnesota was that it just kept raining, it kept being wet in May, and everybody had trouble planting. Yeah. Was that the case for you guys? And how did how do you feel like your high tunnel production gave you insurance um, among that scenario? Right. So, <clears throat> so yeah, we were, we, this year, um, 2019 was the latest that we were in our fields planting in the spring. Um, I believe we got in maybe May 10th to plant our first crops in our outdoor field production. Um, but we were able to get in in mid-March and plant in our high tunnels. Um, and we kind of knew just with the amount of snow and the cold and the moisture levels, like we were going into the spring with really saturated soils from the, from 2018 in the fall. So we just knew it was gonna be a really, really wet spring. So when we were planning um, our high tunnel production, we were really planning on like, how can we maximize our spring production so that we can kind of make up for this gap that we're gonna experience from the field. And it literally, I feel like it saved us from having to like go out and get a job this um, winter, you know, like it it like was the difference between us being profitable and not because not only were we able to get sales and get production from that early spring from May through mid June when we had absolutely no field production, but we were also able to plant our summer crops earlier so that we we planted tomatoes in mid April. Um, did some minimal heating in that high tunnel just so we could kind of keep the plants alive and keep them happy. Um, I think we were heating to about 50 or 53 degrees. Um, but then we had tomatoes in um, early June. So um, for us being able to get in that the high value summer crops, um, in earlier in the spring and early summer so that we can take advantage of those early sales, which are really the most profitable sales. Um, we can sell, you know, um, nobody has tomatoes in their garden. They're not widely available locally, so we can really take advantage of that. Um, and that pays for, that pays for <laughs> the structure, that pays for a lot of the labor. I will say the high tunnels are extremely labor intensive, especially when we're doing interplanting and um, companion planting. However, it pencils out for us. Yeah. And as far as excess water in the field, um, are you using tarps, cover crops, or any other method to try to make it so you can get into the field earlier if the field's really wet? Right. So um, the the main thing I would say um, 
we had already been doing this. We kind of had already seen the necessity of doing most of our fall, of our tillage in the fall and our field prep for our spring fields in the fall, as in compost application and chisel plowing and really kind of having everything ready to go for our spring fields, that is all done in the fall. And I would say that's more of a function of our very heavy clay soils, is that just inevitably we are getting into our fields later in the spring um, because of our soil type. Um, so, but that has become even more important to us um, since we're typically having these wet, very excessive wet springs and really short windows. Um, we do use some plastic mulch for um, certain high value crops in the field. And this spring um, in particular, we were able to go through and lay our plastic mulch early when we had a, when we had a dry window um, in May so that then it was all ready to go. So when the rest of the field may be wet, we may, you know, like it's too wet for us to plant, but we can still get in the field. Um, it's not super saturated. We can typically get in the field and plant on a plastic mulch bed, which is also a raised bed, um, essentially. Uh, and so that gives us a little bit more flexibility. So that is something that has become more important, something that a practice we were already doing, um, but it has become a more valuable practice for us. Um, we haven't used any tarps for covering soil, although that's something that we're really interested in and have talked to other farmers about um, what they're doing with that, um, both for keeping moisture off, but also for kind of that weed management component um, and steel bedding. And then we do use a lot of covering in the field, which for multiple, multiple purposes, some of it is for insect control, um, some of it is for other pest um, control, like deer, if we have just one bed that we need to cover from deer, but we don't want to put up a fence, we may cover that to keep the deer out. Um, but that can also help us with to manage some of the moisture. Um, also protection from wind and um, hail, which seems like with these like variable storms, um, there's, a, there's an increased presence of that, of just like you never know when um, you're gonna get hail. And it could be at very odd times of the year. Like we have gotten hail in March, I think for the last couple of springs, um, we've also gotten hail in like the end of September and a fall thunderstorm. So kind of like seeing it at different, just wacky periods of time. Yeah. And you talked about disease management briefly. What are your approaches towards disease management? And have you shifted any of these in recent years due to the excess moisture, excess rainfall that we're talking about? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's something that we spend a lot of time um, thinking about and then doing some research and talking to other growers um, and seed companies in the winter. Um, so there's a, a few approaches that we've taken to that. And I would say the first one, um, like especially when we're talking about black rot um, or some of the other like mold 
things, um, leaf mold that we've struggled with in high tunnels is to trial some of the resistant varieties um, and then talking to other growers because um, there are some varieties that are not necessarily listed as resistant, but they fare much better than other varieties. Um, so a lot of kind of just like general observation in our own production of what varieties seem to be able to kind of do better in these new conditions versus other varieties. So we have definitely dropped a lot of varieties and I would say um, the trend for us is to kind of like streamline and find like these, uh, you know, find three varieties of broccoli or two varieties of cauliflower that do well um, instead of growing, you know, eight different kinds. Um, just so we kind of are like, no matter what happens, we know that we'll have this variety and this can tolerate like the the um, bacterial soft rot much better than this variety. Um, also, you know, like you see really variation in varieties of like how their cold tolerance um, and uh, and heat tolerance. And so that's something that like kind of continual observation, talking with other growers, talking to seed reps um, about what we're experiencing and what has been successful for other growers and then trialing that um, to kind of bring that in and compare production with what we're doing. Um, so, so there's that. Um, I would say another thing is, um, yeah, just like more observation of like what are the conditions um, and what are the cultural techniques that we can do to help um, prevent that disease. So does something really benefit from being grown on a, on a mulch? Um, or do we need to grow this on a single row or a double row instead of a, instead of a three rows per bed system for increased airflow? Um, things like that have been, um, we've definitely made changes in that. And then, you know, there are some crops that we've really struggled with, like with disease. Um, and oftentimes it's not only are we struggling maybe with disease with that crop, but we're also struggling in some other way. Like it is something that's a really long season crop. So we tend to have a lot of weed pressure in that crop, which then, um, you know, then we're dealing with for years because we have uh, a, a weed seed bank essentially in that field. Um, so that may be another, like a crop that we may say, this isn't that popular, it's not that profitable. Um, we're having some disease challenges with this. We're also having weed challenges because we're maybe not able to get in and cultivate and take care of the weeds as often as normal. So we're, we're just gonna drop that. Um, so we, this year, um, dropped three or four kind of more marginal crops, um, but things that we just, when we ran the numbers and looked at the cost of actually having that in the field, didn't seem worth it to grow it anymore. What's your strategy been for black rot and soft rot on brassicas? So um, rotation, field rotation um, for at least three years, if possible, is been um, top priority for us. Um, and so on our farm, um, we have 22 different fields. So they are inside, they range in size from about a third to a half an, an, of an acre. Um, but what that allows us is to do a lot of rotation among small fields. 
Um, and because we're a small farm um, that's growing a very wide diversity of vegetables, we are probably growing 45 different crops, around 200 different varieties of crops. Um, gives us a lot of latitude to kind of like switch that around and mix it up. Um, and then also, you know, on our farm, because we have 40 acres, our fields, um, we kind of have these different like microclimates around the farm, um, or we have fields that are divided by a wetland and woods, for example. So we can kind of rotate something out over into that part if we've been experiencing some disease issues or some insect issues on one part of the farm. Um, so for black rot, the rotation is really key, looking for resistant varieties. Um, also, I think what we learned is to be really proactive about it so that if we are going into a really wet, hot, humid spell and we are seeing it show up, we've, we've, we've experienced it um, worse in cauliflower. And so if we see that it's coming um, and that it's a particular that it's likely going to get worse instead of just like letting that crop hang out and be there <laughs> and see what happens we may be more proactive to say like you know what we're just going to get rid of that we're going to plant our next succession of cauliflower in a different area um and we just don't want to have that like disease vector hanging out on the farm whereas i think when we first when the black rot first showed up on our farm in um 2015 or you know a few years ago <clears throat> we were so it, it was so new to us that it was like just entire fields of cauliflower just turned to mush you know and um whereas if we had realized like the prop like how it was going to progress and the severity of it like we would have mowed it and dissed that in immediately you know like we're not going to get anything off of there um so being really proactive and kind of like identifying that has been important. And then, um, yeah, and then being really observant about um, trialing things and comparing like results um, and, and noticing differences um, between fields um, because there may be like some other things going on. Like if we're having like lower fertility in a lower fertility field, then we may see the, like that black rot or that soft bacterial rot. It's almost like those plants are more susceptible to it. Um, or if, if they're in a field that has like poor drainage, um, you know, like what are these things that we're noticing that we can be pay really close attention when we're planting our, because what we're most affected is kind of that August through the fall. Um, once it gets cold, it seems like the black rot kind of just stops. So even if we have a little bit of infection um, on the leaves of, the, of our broccoli plants or our cauliflower plants, um, it's not affecting the actual um, head of broccoli or the actual vegetable. Um, so <clears throat> so that's, that has, is what we've learned so far. I will say it still feels like we're learning how to manage this um, and how to be really careful. And then, you know, like what good hygiene practices to use, like not using equipment that you've used to disc in your black rot to then go work another field that you're gonna be planting into next, so. Super important. Right, yeah, um, that is a big part of it. <laughs>
Can you give any detail on the approach you take to make sure your employees aren't doing that? Or how do you actually put that into practice? Right. <clears throat> so um, with any disease um, like black rot or leaf mold, for example, we have a lot of leaf mold on our tomato plants. Um, so we have to be really careful to actually not transmit um, uh, like leaf mold spores from infected plants to non-infected plants. Like accidentally we've um, transmitted leaf mold to our field tomatoes um, just from our, you know, from our workers and probably from our tools. Uh, so that is definitely a worker training piece um, component that we have to like educate our workers and, and staff and whoever is helping us out on the farm, including workshares. Um, what that looks like and then um, kind of like how to move through a field. So if they're going to be harvesting um, broccoli, for example, we want them to move from the newest patch to the oldest patch. Um, or same with um, tomatoes. We actually try to pick our tomatoes from the hoop house a different day of the week than our field tomatoes so that we're just minimizing any sort of cross-contamination that could happen. Um, either bringing disease from the hoop house into the field or vice versa. Um, so having just kind of like these really clear like cultural practices and guidelines. And then we do a lot with um, just like basic general housekeeping and cleaning already. Um, but that I think is an important part of like making sure our tools are clean, like making sure that we have clean gloves, like making sure that we're wearing clean clothes so we don't have that on our on our tools and equipment that's coming into the field. And then mom, my husband does most of the like large scale machinery and equipment work and he's pretty conscious of like knowing how to work the fields and how to cultivate and work through things so that he is not transmitting that as a vector going through there. Um, that being said, you know, you can do everything that you can kind of with those hygienic practices on the farm. Um, but just, we have just like extreme wind here <laughs> on the prairie. And it seems like despite our best efforts, you know, like things are transmitted, like soil blows, um, there are deer, there are other critters that are moving from field to field. So we can't control everything. So that can feel frustrating sometimes. Do you use raised beds at all to combat excess moisture or anything else? Uh, okay, so definitely we do use raised beds in our hoop houses. Um, and we have one particular hoop house, it was actually one of the first ones that we put up, that is in a, a pretty wet area. If we could redo it over again, we probably wouldn't site it there as a hoop house. Just because when we have these big rainfall events or when we have standing water, it will seep up from the soil and the, the hoop house itself, it will be, there will be um, water in there. So we kind of re, by hand, um, made raised beds again this year because after several years of use, they kind of like, it all kind of levels out, you know, from your tillage and your, um, your handwork and whatnot in there. So we um, reformed the raised beds and really because we knew it was a very wet spring, we wanted to have them be kind of um, exaggerated. Uh, and that was huge when we got some big rain events this spring, 
what ended up happening is our crops in the raised bed were fine, but the the walkways, um, you know, there would be three to four inches of standing water in the walkways, and in some of those areas for a lot for days, um, and so it seemed like we probably saved ourselves um, quite a bit of like crop loss and rot. Um, the and you know the other challenge I haven't mentioned is with all of this excessive rainfall is that then we have a lot of um, nutrient leaching. Um, so in very wet areas of the field where we have standing water or in the hoop houses where we have standing water, I mean, our crop fertility really suffers, you know, which then affects our yields. Um, so we have these kind of like really weird, you know, areas where it's like, oh, it's not the whole field. It's not the whole hoop house. It's just like this small patch that is like excessively wet and who knows why that is. Um, we're not doing any tiling on our farm. Uh, so, you know, because we're so small, we can definitely in the hoop houses can kind of attend to that. Um, but that is a huge, that is another huge effect um, of this rainfall, especially in an organic system. We don't have the capacity to just use a chemical fertilizer to kind of like replace that right away. Like we're operating on, you know, like more of a longer term soil health um, platform. Uh, so anyways, the raised beds have been really helpful for us in the hoop house. Um, we haven't done a lot of work with raised beds in the field, although when we do um, lay plastic mulch, we end up having a bit of a raised bed. And so there is like a benefit of that as well, of not only having it covered with plastic, but having it be more elevated. Um, we've exper experimented with raised beds a little bit in the past. Um, and you know, I think that's something that we're interested in. Um, kind of not sure of like whether it's worth the investment and the equipment. Do you mean cover crops? I mean raised beds. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And for cover crops, um, I wouldn't say that we've really. So, so I wouldn't say we've changed our practices around cover crops um, related specifically to climate change. But I will say that probably climate change has reinforced the importance of cover crops and also elevated the priority of seeding and planting our cover crops when we have these short windows, knowing that we may not be able to get into the fields again for a long time and we really need things on our bare ground to keep that soil in place. Um, and so, most of our cover crop practices like have been in place for a long time and we have a good mix of different cover crops that we use that work really well for our soil and for our production. And the urgency I think of having them has just gone up a notch because um, such a, a difference, you know, like seeing that soil runoff from a four inch rain is painful. Um, but those fields that are that are in um, buckwheat or oats and peas and have a lot of um, a lot of cover there, uh, we see a lot less runoff, obviously. Um, so a huge tool for us. Yeah. I think that's all I've got. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Hmm. Um, that's a good question. I think so. I would say the one. One thing, if you have time to include this, is that 
like we as farmers, of course, know that this is a reality and not a lot of people are talking about climate change and putting a lot of resources into climate change, especially in the United States. Um, so I think that like it can feel really discouraging, but we as farmers have so much knowledge and firsthand experience with this. Like it's um, up to us and also like organizations and resources that work with farmers um, for them to really channel conversations um, around climate change and what farmers are doing on their own farms, what is working for them so we can learn from each other. Um, Cause I think that we, you know, at this point in time, um, that's probably gonna be like our biggest source of knowledge and support um, because we're just not seeing it on a policy level. Um, and, and also I will say <laughs> when we think about, we have two little boys and when we think about like wanting them to be involved with farming right now, they want to be, and who knows if that will change. Um, but this feels like one of the biggest, um, risks to like the long-term sustainability of our business, um, which is really scary. And, um, you know, for me, what I feel like that means is that like, this is why it's so important that we keep talking about this, that we find really innovative solutions, um, because it's not like we can just have other people grow our food. Um, this is something that like, we're gonna have to figure out how to do this um, with the, the adversity that comes with it as well, so. Well, thank you so much for yeah. talking to me today. This is thank great. you. Yeah, thanks for coming. Sure. Hi listeners, this is Natalie again. Thank you for tuning in this week. Um, I think that that last thing that Laura said was really important, that we can't just have other people grow our food. We're going to have to figure this out. Um, and that's part of the rationale for doing this little mini-series, is that hopefully you can learn some things from other farmers who are trying to find solutions to growing vegetables and fruit um, in a changing climate. And so I hope you learned something, and I hope you'll tune in again for the next couple of episodes. If you did enjoy this episode or any of our others, please do leave us a review on iTunes. Um, it really helps us to know whether we're doing things right, whether you enjoy our podcast, and please also uh, feel free to leave suggestions there for episodes that you would like us to cover um, or topics you'd like to hear more about. So thanks again for listening, and hopefully we will connect in our next episode.